Welcome to our podcast, Growing Give and Take Kids, Power Traits for Life. This program is brought to you by Victoria Kendall Hodson and Mary Emma Willis of Reflective Educational Perspectives. They are founders of the Learning Success Institute and Solomar Academy Independent Study Program. They are also co-authors of Discover Your Child's Learning Style and Self-Portrait Power Traits Assessment. Their mission is to give parents and teachers the tools to empower kids to thrive in the real world by focusing on their strength, or as they call it, power traits. Please visit powertraitsforlife.com or reflectiveed.com for more information. You can also check out learningsuccessinstitute.com and solomaracademy.com. Welcome back to Growing Give and Take Kids Power Traits for Life. I'm Mary Emma Willis, and today Edie Lamphar is back, as well as another guest, Dr. Phil Fitzsimmons. And this is part three of our series on the brain and learning. Edie is a passionate educator who is committed to creating amazing opportunities for students. She has a California teaching credential and master's in marriage and family therapy and counseling. Her background also includes special education, social-emotional learning, family dynamics, and nonviolent communication, as well as classroom teacher, principal, and curriculum developer for preschool through college. Welcome back, Edie. Hi, Mary Emma. How are you? Hi. Great. I'm glad you're back. Thanks. Me too. And our special guest today is Dr. Phil Fitzsimmons an educator from Australia, and he has a PhD in education. He started as a classroom teacher and has worked in schools in Australia, England, and the U.S., training teachers, doing research regarding learning and literacy, and he was also the curriculum consultant to the state of New South Wales. For the last 30 years, he has been an educational researcher and is with us today to talk about the conditions for learning. Welcome, Dr. Phil. Thanks, Mary Emma. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, Phil, tell us what you mean by the phrase, the conditions for learning. Have you got a few days, Mary Emma? <laughs> <laughs> the conditions for learning, I'll tell you the background to it. The conditions for learning started around 1979, 1980, mm. when a group of people were sitting around talking about where could we see the best example of learning. And uh, at that time, I was a classroom teacher, and Brian Camborn, who really ran with it and developed the theory of conditions at the time of learning, it became changed to for learning, uh-huh. was working in my school. And so that continued a relationship that's still going on. The conditions for learning, as I said, arose out of the question, where can we see the best example of learning? And um, I'm going to use the royal we. We decided that children learning to speak was the best example we could find or see and investigate for learning. And so not only did we work in schools and with parents, which is still going on, we also uh, spoke to parents and, and went into homes, as I said, and we found that there were seven conditions for learning. And these conditions are synchronous and synergistic, they all have to be working at once. Sometimes you'll see them written down 
in a hierarchical order, especially in textbooks, etc. And shakily, we say that's just the male version of the way things work. In fact, they're, <laughs> we, we turn to the washing machine model. They're all integrated uh-huh. together. Uh, if you overemphasize one, it, learning doesn't work. So it's more like a network. With it's it's a branches intertwine. They intertwine. Mm-hmm. It's very it's. It's remarkably simple and yet remarkably complex mm-hmm. as well. But they are synergistic um, and they are synchronous. They all have to pre- be presented, be present um, as they are with kids in the home before coming to school. Oh, that's interesting. So these are things that you want present. They have to be they present. They have to be present before they start school so that... They are present before they start school. They just are present. They are just they... present. They're the... We used to, and it has been used for a long time now, the natural conditions for learning. Because across the globe, we've looked at this and we've found that it works in all cultures. All kids learn how to speak. All kids learn to hold an adult conversation around four and a half years, five years of age. And so in those five years, those conditions from the moment a child is born, and probably beforehand, up and, uh, they're just present. And it's school gets in the way. Um, learning to speak is a very powerful form of learning. Children uh, will never learn as much as quickly ever again. Um, and so what we, uh, what we decided when we looked at this and, and looked at it in schools as well was that these conditions have to be, present, be, uh, be present from birth all the way through life for effective, authentic learning to occur. So in other words, these are just things that are present in us. They are things that are naturally present. Naturally present. When yes. We, because we learn to walk. We learn to yes. talk. We learn to do all kinds of yes. things. Stand up. They actually apply to all. They actually apply to all learning, but specifically arose out of how did the question: How do children learn uh-huh. how to talk? Uh huh. What, what are the What are the elements? What are the aspects? What are the conditions that are present that facilitate learning to talk? And of course, neuroscience has taken it even further now, and we now know that uh, these conditions actually facilitate. The electro waves in the brain, especially in the Borka region, that's where learning really starts. That's where the electrical waves that are transverse, that move to and fro throughout the brain, actually start. And so we are programmed, whoever he or she designed the universe, they programmed us to learn language. Um, and that, and we are provided naturally with the conditions of learning. Having said that, they can be broken down. Okay. They can be disrupted. Mm-hmm. And as I said, school does disrupt. Uh-huh. There's a different model. You want to talk about what the the actual conditions are? Because I think what's really interesting to me, when I first learned about the conditions for learning, the language that you and Dr. Brian Camborn use were words that I think are often misused in education. So I think that if you could go through those seven conditions and explain what they are, um, then we can talk about how the language that is used to, to describe them and explain them is often uh, misconstrued in traditional educational system. Yeah, you're right. That has been misconstrued yeah. in lots of ways. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, look, I'm, as I said, I'm going to put, give them, uh, provide you with a list of them, but in fact they're not supposed to have been lifted or, listed all. Right. They're synchronous. <laughs> they're synergistic. They all go together. But it's hard to talk about them all. Well, exactly, right. exactly right. <laughs> so we have to spread them apart to <laughs> yeah. talk about them. Absolutely. Right. So the first one I'm going to talk about is the notion of immersion. And this, I'm going to step back to what Edie said. This has caused the most problem for many teachers across the globe, but in particular for administrators in Australia. Immersion is 
as Hayakawa said, children learn to speak by just being totally immersed in language as if they were standing under Niagara Falls. It just completely washes over them constantly and they can't get away from it. From the moment a child is born, actually I'm going to step back, uh, we now know that children respond to, to a mother's voice very, very early on and they also respond to ambulance sirens in utero. So this immersion process happens very, very early on and it just washes over the child completely. The second one is demonstration. From the moment a child is born, typically, and I'll give you another example in a minute, typically parents speak in whole language unit. They don't, it's only grandmothers who sometimes go goo goo, ga ga ga, blah blah blah, <laughs> and talk, talk baby ease. Most parents talk in whole, whole, um, whole sentences, and they often start with very complex sentences. I mean, I've, I've done several longitudinal studies with families from looking at their children and the way they grow and develop and learn language and literacy from birth through to 13, for example. And I've seen some amazing language use. For example, a baby comes home. Uh, from hospital, and the mum says, who's a pretty boy? Now, at one stage, I thought she was talking about the parrot, but she was talking about the child. Now, that's a rhetorical question. That's the most difficult form of language that there is, and yet it was one of the first forms the mother used. And so these demonstrations are whole language, not broken up, not cut up, not changed. And no matter the culture the child is born in, they learn to understand and pick up, and, and children will understand language long before they can speak it. Russian, I mean, I can't, I tried to learn Russian in school, but I had to give up. It's extremely difficult to get Russian kids pick it up very easily. And they, they're not only give, given oral demonstrations, they're given physical demonstrations. Um, I remember sitting around dinner table with a, a family once, and the baby, or the baby, the young toddler, was had single use of vocabulary, lexical items, and the baby, the young child said, milk. And the mum immediately responded with, oh, you want some milk. So they get feedback of whole language units in context, and she then passed the milk to the baby. So the baby's making all these semantic, real-world understandings. They're getting syntactic immersion demonstration going on as well, the flow of language. And they're also getting that phonemic, depending on the culture, those phonetic stress items as well. Well, it's interesting because the child, I mean, there's no, like, curriculum for the child. Thank goodness. (laughs) And at the same time, there's no curriculum for the parent either. No. Right. You know, like, this is how you do it. Right. And so they're responding sort of like with common sense. Right. That's what we used to call it, natural learning. It's natural learning. It's like... Of course, I'm going to say, oh, you want milk. Mm. You know, oh, well, let's do it this way. Well, here, let's come over here and I'll give it to you or whatever it is that they're going to say. And then they're using just very natural language. And not only that, um, can you imagine what a child would ha- would do or what they would come out like if, a ba- the, if the mother said, you stupid fool of a baby, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> say the whole sentence, now repeat it after me, <laughs> say it properly, you've got to get it right before you can get the milk, uh-huh. and yet... I mean, we laugh at that, but yet I have seen that happen in school. Well, yes, and let's go back to this with Phil. That Mm. reminds me that um, we talk about this, for example, when 
uh, kids are learning anything, mm. you know, uh, walking, crawling, mm. uh, riding a bike for the first mm. time, uh, uh, unless in very rare uh, uh, situations, most parents do not say things like, well, you got an F today because you couldn't ride a Absolutely, bike more yes. than five minutes or, yeah. you know, it's yeah. a, well, it's a C, you're getting yeah, a little yeah. better. I mean, <laughs> Nobody right. does no, no, that. Nobody does it. They go, yay, right. you sat on the bike today right. and, to, you know, and then tomorrow. Yay, I, I let go for a second and you stood on the bike. Right. All of these things, but nobody ever is like down, downshifting. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, because they're celebrating their strengths, right? right? They're celebrating their approximations their towards, the, right. towards that right. goal. And it's amazing how that's, I love that word celebration that you both yes. used. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this happen in, in homes as well. Um, the baby for the, fir- for the first time says, dad, 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 dad. And immediately <laughs> the family erupts in celebration. They ring great Aunt right. Ethel in Sydney. You know, like the baby said their first one. When in fact, really, the ba- every child says dad, dad, dad around the world because it's easy, it's the most easiest mm-hmm. muscular form of getting language. But yet that change and that shift, the baby goes, oh, I got a reaction yeah, here. Yeah. No, I didn't get put down. Look what I can do. I'll do it again. Yeah. Um, and in fact, look what yeah. I can do. You know, you right. see those little kids Watch me, watch me, right, watch right, right. Me. Watch right. what I can look do. at me, and yeah. they do it over and over right, right, right. and over, right? Yes. And not only that, um, the other day we were walking around Disneyland, for example, and I was looking at the young kid in Dad's arm, and she she went like this on Dad's face. And turned around and pointed. So she she wanted Dad to look at something that she'd seen and wanted him to say what it was. Ah, oh, so she yeah. grabbed his face. Yeah, and yeah. Exactly. yeah. So she put her finger inside his mouth and pulled his mouth to, to define what that was because she and, wanted to know. And so this is going to say that all this whole process too is dialogic. It's this interactional relational response, and kids will retry and react and respond. Um, and because that's what their the brain tells them to do. Um, and, and going back to, to the first words and the way children learn, I mean, we couldn't never do this now in lots of ways. We put a camera over a baby's bed and filmed the, whole, the kid the whole night. And the, the child was about eight months, just on that cusp of learning to speak. And, you know, the, the old term, sleep like a baby, babies don't sleep still. The kid rolled around and around, and you could hear her saying over and over and over and over, Repeating things she'd heard or sounds she'd heard in in her environment for that day. And we noticed time and time again, when young children learning to speak do that, once they get it, it sticks. It's yeah. not the opposite. If they are punished for not getting it, it'll go away and they won't right. even retry. But if they're allowed to, the next condition is approximations, making approximations to this. What we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. once they get it, it sticks. Uh-huh. But they've got to have that psychological, they've got to have that freedom of total absence of psychological harm, physical harm, social harm, or personal harm to do this. It's, it's a harm-free, positive, um, giving responsibility to the child, letting them have, have a go over and over and over. In fact, in, in our vocabulary, we never use the word fail. Because if language is the best example of learning, kids are just allowed to make, and I'll use that word, having said, mistakes, or rather approximations, over and over and over until they get it. Right. And, and once, that's, again, like the bicycle or tying a shoe absolutely, or whatever yeah. it is. Once they get it, they get it. Yeah. And yes, you'll fall off. And, but this also, 
one of the things that is very important, I think that Edie and I have been working on playing around with, is this notion of noticing. Children are trained to notice and observe. And depending on the household you are in, lots you'll, you'll get lots of different foci to look at. I mean, the classic example is I have two very close friends who um, got married in, in their mid-40s and had a child, but they were avid sailors before they got married. And so they just went sailing and sailing and sailing. And I remember this child could tie a knot perfectly um, to, before she could walk. And, of course, they're the things, that's the environment, the milieu she was in was noticing. And so it, it, this is very important for, for children in school, for example. This is why reading to a child and talking to a child and writing with a child is very important. So they begin to notice what mum and dad do. This notion of the significant other uh-huh. is really important. Teachers have to be the significant other, and they're not always the significant other for a child, who, where they create risk-free environments. Um, that, that, I mean, I once did a study uh, of quality teachers, and I wish I had a dollar for every time these teachers said, take a risk, have a go. And the child would, and they would get this positive feedback, which is another condition of learning. This this feedback, which is oral, which is authentic, which is in the body language. It goes to being a significant other, where you genuine care care for the child, and their responses are always valued, no matter what they are. And and I hate to be, I'm not teacher bashing, but I've seen it lots of times. I was in a classroom quite a few years ago, and the teacher was the kindergarten teacher was reading to the children, and the, the little kid put up his hand and said, oh, Huey, Louie and Dewey. And everyone went, well, this is totally out of left field. And the teacher could have said, well, you know, let's get back on track, you know, focus here. But she didn't. She said, can you explain that? And the child began to say, oh, look, here are these three kids, they're babies, you know, they're ducks, but they get a really hard time from their father. Now, that child had the freedom to say that yes. and had made that connection and the, the teacher didn't value that as a mistake, that is an approximation, and realised they had more to say. That is, a, I mean, a wonderful example of a teacher that would recognise that. We, we talk about that a lot, especially with the curious disposition mm. and to ask um, questions that mm. seem out of the blue right. or yeah. like yeah. totally yeah. unrelated yeah. to anything yeah. and the immediate response is, you know, Stop disrupting the class. Mm. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Or pay mm. attention. You're not listening. Absolutely. Instead of, um, wow, that's an interesting yeah, yeah. question or mm. comment. Tell us how you got there, and then you could. And you they're could always then, fascinating. And then yeah. they're all. They always have a reason that it yeah. totally relates. They were yeah. listening to you, yeah. and yes. it made them think of this, and that's right. how they're processing. And it helps others in the classroom as well. Right. And then, of course, the teacher or the parent can say, wow, that's great. I love that. Can we put it on hold for a second Mm. while we finish this? You could do that. Or you could say, this is amazing. Let's talk about it now. Does anybody else want to talk about this? So now you're acknowledged that. And that's dialogic responsibility and response and reaction um, in a relationship where you have the mm. freedom to do that. And teach, good teachers can bring it always back around to where they're going. Sure. Another example, I, I mean, I sat in, uh, one of my favourite teachers of all time, was, and I'm not going to mention her name, I'm allowed, her name is Joy Mulready. I was sitting in her class, kindergarten class, and she had a habit of letting the kids bring in their own books, and she would read the kids. Oh, how cool. And the kid, <laughs> a kid, one kid brought in the book, it was called Cat In, Dog Out. 
cat in, dog, dog out. out. And the whole story was about a dog and a cat coming into the house, being thrown out, letting coming in, being thrown out. And, and so there are only four words, dog in, cat out, cat in, dog out, dog oh in. Oh, my dog. God. And one little kid put up a hand and said, um, Mrs. Mrs. Maureen, that's not a real book. And, and, and Joy stopped and said, yes, it is. It's got hard cover and one. No, no, that's not the way that books are written and that's not the way that we talk. <laughs> and and that started an hour-long conversation about book language. What's a book? What's, yeah. what's a book? That's what's the purpose? Great. What's the language? And so you know, she went totally up, a loud left-field yeah. response become her teachable yeah. moment. So which is another condition of there's this expectation, as I said before, that teachers allow children and give up this sense of expectation, we are co-learners. We are co-constructors here. I will listen to you, you can listen to me, we can disagree. And that's the way that empowers children to have a voice and to hear the voice of others. Well, and I think going along with that, that idea is that adults who say, I, I can't possibly know everything there is to know, you're going to teach me some things too, right? Yeah. Is that that allows kids to see that they have some... Uh, efficacy in their learning environment is like, oh, you don't know everything, and I actually know something that yeah. you might not know, and that they're willing to risk and share because they know that they're going to be seen as valuable contributors Contribute. to the classroom, right? Again, and we, we talked talk about, about contributions, yeah, right? Kind of, yeah, right. but all this has to happen in as a constructivist and constructionist. Now, they're big terms that simply mean we are going to. I know that you know stuff in a constructive sense, and I'm going to allow you to tell me what you know, and we're going to co-construct meaning, and it's constructivist. The good teachers I have seen and work with always do something, almost and physically, with the learning as well. So it's constructivist and it's constructionist. Um, And the kids, the other condition of learning is using it for real-life purposes. That's why I, and I'm going to use a very powerful word, I hate. I hate stencils or you know <laughs> you mean you personally i i, I hate them because yes, yes. they're not real life learning yes, yes you know they're just you mean like worksheets worksheet we call them, we call them stencils yeah, yeah you call them worksheets, worksheets yeah, yeah. <laughs> i also hate the word i also hate curriculum i i think what that was that curriculum oh curriculum i uh-huh. don't you know there's i don't see a need for it at best i see and i've worked with Edie in a school where there were basically only three curricula uh, the language arts maths and science and arts. There's, there are other schools which are really successful, which have which are, where the curricula is constructed by the kids. Yes. Where all the conditions are put into place. The children decide what they want to learn. They all negotiate what they want to do. And the schools in Australia where this works, you know, there's a waiting list of almost 10 years to get in. Wow. Because it is so powerful. Wow. It is so powerful because the kids own. Now, you won't see ownership in the conditions of learning. But kids have to own their own learning just as they own learning to speak. When you want to do something, we always say that your interests are the most powerful motivators. Absolutely. If you're interested in something and you want to do it, you're going to keep doing it over and over and over. You can see those little kids jumping off that one little step mm. a thousand times right. until they get it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to do that? Exactly. You know what I mean? They really want to do it, and then it transfers across to school, mm. hopefully. But, you know, you were talking about school can get in the way, mm. and I don't think you're through all the conditions of learning yet. No, I'm, pretty much wanna, all the way, I'm pretty much yeah, all the way through. I just want to make sure we, 
we cover this because they're all these conditions of learning are all present in us and we're learning all the time and you know by the time you start even preschool you're a pretty smart little person right you know a lot (laughs) i mean on all levels and what happens what happens the christmas miracle for preschool kids (laughs) over that christmas period they go from being at home where they have responsibility and dialogue and to to school where there's no curriculum. Uh-huh. They're told what to learn, how to learn, when to learn. They've got to compete with 30 other kids, sometimes even more. They're told by an adult who may not be a significant other, who may give off all these expectations of I'm power here, you are not, you know nothing, I'm going to tell you what to do, believe, think and act. Um, and everything that's the Christmas miracle. There's just this expectation. There's no transition from home into school. And very rarely, I mean, I, I told you I did a study, a longitudinal study of quality teachers. Well, I started with 60 teachers and I whittled it down to six. Wow. Because the, the other 54 were do as I do what I don't do what I say. Don't do what I do. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which does, never has worked, right? never worked. <laughs> whether it's a parent, a friend, or right. whoever. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, sorry. No, I wanted to say something about the responsibility part because you hear so many adults telling kids they need to be responsible. Yeah. And the reality is when you look at the conditions for learning and you look at the term responsibility, he means it in a very different mm. way than teachers use it. Yes. And the responsibility means that in order for you to learn, the only person who can learn is you, right? You are responsible for your learning. You are responsible for how you best learn. So when we were looking at the power traits for life and looking at the learning dispositions, it actually allows kids to know how they learn best and to look at the kinds of strategies and techniques that help them to learn best. That's taking responsibility mm. for their learning. So responsibility means what can I do to help myself learn to the best and then I do those things to help myself learn. It doesn't mean that I have to be responsible for me and I have to like put away my backpack and hang up my oh, my right. coat and yeah. you know like that's when I hear teachers talk about responsibility. Uh-huh. Kids need to learn to be organized. They need to learn to put things away or do that but responsibility and the conditions for learning is that I want to participate in my own learning. I don't want to be just told what to do and how to do it and when to do it. I want to be curious and interested and passionate about things. I want to try some things out. I want to go spend a month learning about dinosaurs in kindergarten, right? I want to be the expert of that thing. That's yeah. taking responsibility for what I'm interested in, what I'm curious about. And we don't let kids do that kind of you know, focus for their kind of learning where they can be immersed in something, right. be demonstrated for for long periods of time. We move them through things very quickly once they get into the traditional settings of school. And learning takes time, right? So yeah. to be immersed in something, it takes time. To have some demonstrations from a variety of different people so it doesn't have to be just one, it takes time, right? So we push this idea of curriculum, and I think part of what Phil's talking about when we look at curriculum, we're looking at a set curriculum that has a timeline to it that people have to follow without uh, talking to children about what they're interested in, what they want to learn, and what they would learn best about to help them 
focus on the things that they're interested and passionate about. So part of the conditions for learning, I think the context is that there is time for all of these conditions to be present. And for any kid, if you watch them play outside in nature, right? When we talk about kid, kids being nature deficient, the reason yeah. that nature is important is because you can get lost in nature. But you also, the getting lost piece means that you're spending time exploring. And if we allow children to explore reading or writing or art or science or robotics in the same way we let them explore a stream or yeah. a forest, right? They would come up with some very different experiences. If we let them explore math, Right? In, right in that kind of environment, you would find a lot more kids going, I really enjoy this, right? But we don't. We and give them worksheets, as yeah. you said. Right. And we see it all the time right. in our own independent study program. Yeah. And I know there are others, other independent study programs right. out there, homeschool programs, right. where kids are given that freedom, responsibility, right. you know, right. um, acknowledgement. And, and and are allowed that time and space. Right. I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous to say, we're going to learn about American history. It's all going to be... Right. right. <laughs> on letters on a page. Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. you you both probably know as teachers, but yes. I don't know that all parents know, right. that you hardly ever finish the textbook right. in a classroom. Right. So parents at home that are doing homeschooling with traditional right. textbooks, they can't figure out how do you do that, yeah. you know, and because a te- even in high school, the teacher will say, I remember, you know, well, we're skipping from chapter 10 to 15 right, right. or whatever, <laughs> um, or we're going to do every other one or what, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, because it is impossible right. and your brain cannot even if you do it and right. you pass the test like I did, right. I got all A's, but I remembered nothing because right. half hour after the test, I was on to memorizing the stuff for right. the next Well, test. your brain was pruning Pruning-up. it all away. Yeah. I, I did it. Yeah. I'm good. Get it out. So it is not long-term <laughs> right. No, it's, it's not deep and meaningful. And it doesn't give you that practice, mm. which we call the periods of learning, like the kid that jumps off the step a thousand times right. or jumps jumps rope you know whatever whatever it is right. that they're doing they get that they need the practice well you right. need that to learn your short vowels or your yes. numbers right. or whatever but you just push through and and fulfill <laughs> i just realized really what a shock it can be i i've been doing this for a lot of you know a lot of years but all of a sudden when you were talking about being at home and then starting school it just hit me what a real shock it can be. It is going kids. from that natural learning right. to all of a sudden where, being in a place where you have to sit here yeah, and yeah. Get where everything you've been doing has been celebrated. <laughs> yeah, to going to a place where nothing is celebrated. Right. Yeah, unless right. you get the the, the top, A's, the right? Top unless score, you're the best of everything. Which I Even did. Then, though, yeah. So right. I was, you know, I I don't know if you want to call it lucky. I was yeah. lucky in that. And yet, I wasn't. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the kids I've seen, too, who were like you, mm-hmm. feel like they're imposters. Because what they oh. recognize, right, is that, yes, they, they passed this test, yes, but they don't feel like they mastered no. any understanding. They were able to jump through the hoops. Mm-hmm. They did the work they were supposed to. 
but their understanding, their connectedness to all the things that they needed to know about this in context, right. they don't have access to. No. And they can't explain to anybody else. So they right. don't feel like they've learned and they feel like they're imposters. And so they do a lot of that fawning, right? They, <laughs> they do, they, they feel like, oh my goodness, someone's going to find out at some point that I am not as smart as everybody thinks I am. I felt that yes, all me through too. school, right. in elementary, whatever. Right. And, and in fact, in high school, I was in chemistry class and the teacher asked me why I hadn't signed up to go to the science fair up in San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly. Um, I grew up in LA and I said, because I'm not good at science. I got all A's, okay, but I knew I wasn't good at science. I didn't really get science. And she said, yes, you are. You're good at science. I'm signing you up. I couldn't believe it. So I went to Cal Poly with the group. And I was in, because you take a uh, a math and science test, yeah. you know, and people compete, whatever. I was in there about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I answered like the first three questions and the rest, I had no clue. What it, I'm not a natural science person right. and I didn't, but I could go back. And she didn't even believe me. Right. I mean, how weird is right, that, right. right? She didn't believe me. I must right. be smart because I got A's. Right. Well, that just shows you how sort of. Right. Ridiculous well, and, that right. Is. Well, and I was fortunate, enough, and Phil was with us, and at that school to be able to be in the school where we didn't have grades, uh-huh. and we wrote narratives around formal and informal ways of learning, where you could actually talk about the strengths of children, and the difference, right, was that kids could understand their strengths. Yeah, they could share their strengths. Their parents knew and could share their strengths with them and talk to them about it. The interesting thing was when we decided to move into creating a high school for those same kids and we felt like we had to do grades for the UC system, Mm -hmm. what happened was the very first time we did grades, we also did the narrative and we put the grades at the back of the narrative. So the narratives were often like five to six pages long and every teacher wrote something about the kids in high school. Well, the very first time we did grades, they skipped the entire narrative that talked about all the ways in which they had strengths in all of their learning to their grades. And at that moment, I was heartbroken. The kids did that. Yes, yeah. the kids did mm-hmm. it because they knew, right, that mattered more yeah. than all the things yeah. they knew in how to do. Real in the real world. Yeah. yeah, that real world conversation is frustrating to me as an educator because parents and teachers talk about that all the time. Yeah. As if there's some world down the road that we're getting them ready for. But if we don't help kids now be able to know themselves, to regulate themselves, right? To be able to be immersed in these conditions for learning and to be able to learn, that road down the way is not going to matter because it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Right. And we don't even know what that road's going to look like Especially by the time the kids... nowadays. Right. We, maybe we should do another podcast about we that should. because... Yeah. And, and I want to get back to you, Phil, um, and I think this will relate, because what is the real world anyway? Is right. the real world an artificial classroom where everybody of the same age is in there? And right. Got, <laughs> right. You know, 20 to 40, depending on the classroom, yeah, and yeah. they're all doing the same thing at exactly the same time. Right, right. And is right. that the real world? Right. I mean... Well, what, that's one of my favorite uh, yeah. 
that Sir Ken Robinson's uh, talk, he, and they did an RSA animate, so if you ever get to look that up, it's one of the most watched ones. But he talks about that, like we created this factory model, uh-huh. right? Which is never replicated in the world. It's never again. Again, right? yeah. So there yeah. are only two things to that point. There are only two things in our real world that are homogenized. One is milk, and the other is school. Right. <laughs> um, other than that, you go off and you do, you do your own thing. I, I just want to emphasize though, the one thing that I, I think I've forgotten to emphasize yeah. is that all learning is social. Yeah, these conditions are there, and they're to be done in in relationship with a significant other and group of others. And the second thing too is that I really want to emphasize is that while children have the right um, and, and natural right to take responsibility for their own learning. When they go to school, a good teacher facilitates what they want to do and guides them. It's not just a free-for-all, go and learn. Right. It guides them. And so it's the old corollary of education. The more difficult and more time it takes to design lessons, the more powerful the learning will be. The less time you put into it, the less powerful it will be. And so it takes time and effort, but it's, it's empowering and it's authentic. And going back to Sir Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, one of his most famous ex- research experiments, he's a quantitative sort of guy, was that he tested kindergarten kids for the uh, creativity level and they all came out on the genius side. 98%. 98%. 98%. I, I can guess what you're going to say <laughs> Three years later, right. they came all out yeah. as severely disabled. Yeah. And I don't like school bashing. Teachers do an amazing job. However, we have to really radically rethink what we're doing. In 1979, um, the famous statement came out, you know, if edu- in taking up psychology, education backed the wrong horse. And that's where the problem lies. Yeah. Well, and going along with that study that you just said, there's another one that shows that kids in starting kindergarten score really high mm-hmm. on um, feeling good about themselves mm-hmm. and right. self-confidence. And that same uh, evaluation taken in high school, uh, mm-hmm. well, it showed that, again, 98%. Right. And it was reversed for right. high school. It was the 98% did mm-hmm. not feel good about themselves mm-hmm. and did not have good self-confidence. And I know, again, that when, when we uh, look at kids who are in um, independent study programs where they can choice and take time to learn. Mm -hmm. I've had students myself and many of our uh, coaches in our program, as well as in other independent study programs, the kids come in sometimes already in middle school or high school, and they're just totally turned. They don't care about anything. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to do anything. And just a few months later, or maybe it takes a year sometimes, and they're like doing the most amazing things. Like one of my students who really didn't care about anything except pop stars and fashion, which is okay. I'm not saying that's bad. And yet she didn't know the possibility. And so because we allowed her to go with that and take her time and really immerse herself and do a journal and et cetera, all of a sudden... She was interested in astronomy and writing. And I mean, it's just been amazing. And she's about, uh, she's going to graduate in June. She started here when she was in um, seventh grade. And I've just seen her blossom incredibly. It's, again, if she still wanted to work with pop stars and fashion, mm-hmm. that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong mm-hmm. with that. 
but what would she have missed right. if she hadn't been able to um, relax, feel safe, right. and look at some other things? And I actually never even, I never brought up astronomy to her. She was the one that sort of found it and said, I think I want to do this. And now she wants to take physics. And she's, I mean, she's like, you know, picking out places to go, colleges and whatever. And we have many stories like this of students that um, were totally turned off and didn't mm. know what they wanted to do and really couldn't care less, as well as little kids. And so we, we know the power of it, definitely. But I wonder, Phil, if you could just summarize those conditions for learning so that people... All of them? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe just the titles, you know, the... Well, there are seven. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll finish up by just saying what they lead to. So oh, great. Immersion, demonstration, expectation of learning, responsibility for the child's own learning, usage, approximation and response, and they all work together to produce genuine, authentic engagement with learning, mm. which is deep, meaningful and lasting, not superficial and shallow and certainly not rote memorization. Okay, well, <laughs> that sounds great. Do you have any No, and I think when we talk thing? about social-emotional learning along with conditions for learning, when you are taking care of kids' interests and passions and you're creating a safe place where they can talk about who they are, what they care about, what they want to do, that creates people who grow up to be adults who mm. want to make change in the world, who want the world to be a good place to be. So They'll be empowered. They, absolutely. They'll be give and take people. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for sharing all this valuable information. 